Episode 30, Vetting Your Expectations for the End Times and the Beginning Times, too. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Welcome back to episode 30. Uh, the title today is Vetting Your Expectations for the End Times and the Beginning Times too," and we'll be talking about that uh, a good bit, perhaps uh, stir up uh, some uh, controversial things today, things to be thought about. Uh, today's my birthday. I'm 56 years old. Uh, it's April 16th, and um, I am uh, glad to be alive still. I have uh, been learning a lot and been very, very busy with many uh, projects, each of which could become full-time work um, if that were possible, and yet uh, I have so many interests, it's so hard to keep up. And I can tell you at this point in my life that time management is definitely my biggest challenge in life. Uh, so uh, it's very fun, though, to have a lot going on. I've had a very successful week in my school. I've seen a lot of students making good breakthroughs, and uh, I've got programs getting ready um, for big performances. It's fun to see all that coming together uh, nicely and uh, whittling away as we go to determine uh, which things are actually ready for performance and which needs to be need to be saved for some other time. So it's pretty fun, although it's busy. Uh, not busy with uh, work yet. I'm still not in my busy season for uh, for my paying day job, but uh, I got a lot of good stuff going on. That doesn't leave as much time for studying the Bible as I wish I had. Um, I could tell myself, uh, you ought to be a full-time scholar. I'm not sure I'd want full-time, maybe 20 hours a week if... Uh, I found a way to pay the bills so I could really study. But um, even so, I continue to learn and to think, to reflect on what is in the Bible. And I listen a lot. I listen to other podcasts about the Bible. I listen to the radio preachers. I listen to people disagreeing with other people with whom I don't agree either uh, on everything. And... Um, Boy, is it a complicated landscape out there when it comes to Bible uh, and Christianity, church, you know, that whole thing. And today we're going to talk about some of that um, quite on purpose uh, because I think that uh, going back to episode one, God cares about how we think and that uh, we, if I wanted to talk about like all believers in Jesus all together, are doing a pretty lousy job of that in some ways. And it'll become uh, very apparent what I'm talking about today, although this is not entirely anything new for us. Uh, so I want to talk about, um, we'll talk about some end times today, some beginning times, 
and I'll tell you what I mean by that. It's about Genesis 1 and what, uh, what happened there. It may not be what you expect it was. So uh, anyway, uh, there is uh, so much varying psychology in people, how we manage our minds, our beliefs, our expectations, our decisions, our talk. Uh, and, and one of the big questions is, why are there so many disagreements? among us as to how to interpret the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. Why so many different arguments about these things? Why is it not clearer? Why does it not make more sense to us? And uh, I'm going to put forth something for you to think about today. It's the idea, uh, I'll throw out a few words from cognitive science, one about framing or framing effects, uh, one about focal bias, you know, what, what are you looking at or what's on your mind? It may be used metaphorically, figuratively about what are you, you know, looking at in your mind. Uh, and things like that, I want to talk about that. Also about coherence bias. We think that, oh, well, that story sounds coherent to me, therefore it must be true. Well, his, uh, his uh, report about the party made sense to me, so I just assumed it was true. In other words, he had a, a story that seemed fairly consistent, uh, and you didn't look into further facts, and you don't really know if it's true or not. It just seemed good to you, and so you found it satisfying. Well, I think that's a lot about how we handle the Bible. Uh, we don't really dig into it and try to learn all 31,000 and whatever verses there are, but rather, no, more or less, I think I got it together. <laughs> or, you know, as we've talked before, well, I'm pretty much a New Testament specialist, you see. And uh, if we were to press you, we might find out, well, really, you're a red letter edition specialist and whatever is in the red letters is what you work on the most. And then if we were to drill down some more, maybe we'd find that somebody is, well, I really just like the ones that seem hopeful or that seem gentle or soothing. And the rest of the verses, I leave those out, right? So, um, you know, who are we kidding? Most of us aren't even trying to be full Bible scholars who would uh, become good students of the whole thing and to understand the whole thing. And so I think we get ourselves in lots of trouble with that. I wanted to talk to you uh, a little bit about, um, I want to read a passage from Daniel Kahneman, and this is from his uh, super popular book called Thinking Fast and Slow. In the book, he details the um, what he says are the two areas or the two main areas, at least, of the human mind. And these are not like things you can see, you know, in the brain, you know, that you can touch in the brain if you're doing a surgery. These are the human mind, which operates in the brain, but you can't really nail it down like you might expect uh, to say, oh, this part of the machine is the one that, you know, puts the exhaust out into the muffler or something like that. So um, he's talking about framing effects, how um, we can know a know some details but the way it's put to us is the way we tend to take it when actually there are other alternative uh understandings interpretations different models of belief about how it'll work that we might uh actually learn are more uh mobeta as they would say that they are uh more convincing more compelling a more rational, uh, where the math checks out and all that. 
But uh, we tend to get hooked by the way we first hear a thing, and we don't dig deeper to find out more details. Uh, he's he's writing in this particular section. And I'm going to be reading from his page one or page eighty seven, but he writes in this particular section about a certain a lawsuit and a, and a case, and where people were told about this case, but uh, they weren't necessarily told everything. And I just want to pick up here, see if I can make sense out of this small uh, paragraph. He says, furthermore, participants who saw one-sided evidence were more confident of their judgment than those who saw both sides. And I'll stop right there and interject. He's uh, talking about a group of people who were shown uh, one side of an argument and uh, and then they were polled, well, how confident are you in the way you see this? And he says they <laughs> they reported having higher confidence in their view of the matter than did people who were shown both sides of the issue. And he goes on, uh, this is just what you would expect if the confident or if the confidence that people experience is determined by the coherence of the story they managed to construct from available information. Okay, so let me unpack that a little bit. He's saying uh, when people get information, they do tend to construct a story from it. They want it to make sense. The human brain seems to be wired to make things to, uh, to, to want things to make sense. And so we try to do that. Okay, fine. And that's actually a good thing. I believe God invented us that way. And so uh, he's saying that if, if the priority is just to have a coherent story, then this is what you would expect from people like that, that they're going to be more confident only hearing one side of the story. If you recall, uh, Solomon uh, had the one-liner, um, the first to present his case seems right until another comes along and questions him. And Kahneman is talking about that same sort of thing here. They only had one side of the story, and their confidence and their understanding of it was very high. So he goes on. It is the consistency of the information that matters for a good story and not its completeness. Indeed, you will often find that knowing little makes it easier to fit everything you know into a coherent pattern. And this is from thinking fast and slow. And uh, isn't this very true? You know, if you think of the stories you might tell your grandchildren, don't they tend to be rather short stories? You don't have a thousand details or a hundred. You might have two or three. Yeah, one time when I was a boy, we went down to the rock quarry and shot a shotgun we weren't supposed to have. Okay, and the story tends to be about like that. It doesn't have all the original details in it. And of course, memory plays tricks on us over the years, and the memory is not perfect, as uh, most of us have learned. And so uh, the shorter a story, the easier it is to keep track of everything <laughs> and to not get off base with it. Wait, how could that be? I just told you A, and now I'm saying not A. All right, it gets messy, doesn't it? So the shorter the story, the easier it is to keep it together. Uh, and yet that's not what we have in the Bible, now is it? We have, uh, uh, although some of us could wish it were longer and gave us more detail, uh, we definitely have a lot of information about some things. And the question is whether we're going to take into account all of that information or just the parts of it that we like 
and uh, we try to spin from what we like a coherent story. So uh, Kahneman also has a uh, thing that he and his uh, former partner, um, the late Amos Tversky, came up. It's called Wizziati or the Wizziati effect. And uh, Wizziati is an acronym, the letters uh, W-Y-S-I-A-T-A, or T-I rather, Wizziati. And what it stands for is what you see is all there is. And so this really has quite a lot to do with this framing effect. If you just show a bunch of people half a story, they tend to operate as if, oh, well, that's all there is. There is no more than this, you see. And so uh, this is a very, very bad thing about humans if we don't go back and ask, hey, what's the rest of the story? Is there more information than this? What about that part? What happened over there? What was the response to this one? How did that go over, you know? Well, what happens if you test this? And we tend not to do that, right? We just stick with what we're told and we try to make coherent sense out of that. And then there's a, a further problem that, well, wait, Jack, I already have my coherent story already put together on this topic. Uh, I really don't want you to be producing, uh, presenting new information. Uh, you have no idea how much that messes up my existing story. So I'm going to close my eyes and not pay attention to the rest of the details, even if they're right here in the Bible, right under my nose when I'm reading the other passage that I like better. <laughs> and this is a really bad, bad problem that people have. I've probably told this one before, but I love this little skit that the Three Stooges did what seems like a century ago now. Uh, actually, getting closer to that, I'm sure. Probably 80 years, maybe 90. Uh, and in the skit, uh, Curly uh, starts yelling, I can't see, I can't see. And Larry says, what's the matter? And Curly says, I've got my eyes shut. And, you know, aha, okay, haha, it's a big gag. Uh, and, and that's it. However, I find this so useful because uh, it is quite true in a metaphorical sense that if we've got our eyes closed to a thing, you're not going to see it. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, nothing in nature makes you see a thing that you have closed your eyes literally uh, against seeing and the same thing works metaphorically in your mind if you have decided to rule out a fact well nothing will make you see that fact you have to volunteer to see it and that's the way God designed the world to work it would be interesting to talk to him about that and why he did it that way but that is the reality in which we live and so what do we have here we've got this culture that likes short little stories that seem coherent they don't like to hear, but wait a minute, have you considered this? Well, what about that fact? Well, what about over here? What if you read one verse further and take that into account too? Does that mess with the story as you understand it? And a lot of this, this is uh, for us, it's throwing dust up in the air. It's unsettling. It is, uh, you know, demeaning and uh, uh, very aggravating and such. And we just wish other people would shut up and go away and let us believe what we want to believe. But I submit, and you know this by now, that that's very irresponsible. That's dishonest, it's uh, irrational, and it's ir irresponsible behavior. And now that is quite the culture in which we live. Uh, that stuff happens every day, uh, a great deal. Uh, but that's not what we're called to be like that if we uh, love God and want to live in his image. I have about eight pages of notes for this. We'll see if I actually 
manage to read any of them or if I uh, quit talking and just start reading notes aloud to you. But I did write down something that's reminiscent of um, one of my favorite quotes from uh, Thoreau, who said, uh, I'm not sure I'll get this right exactly, but he says, there, uh, to every one hacking at the roots of evil, there are a thousand hacking at the branches or at the leaves, something like that. And I wrote a note um, with that in mind, saying there are probably more than a thousand hearsay repeaters to everyone who is actually invested working the Bible puzzle, him or herself. And so you think about that when we have these neat little packages, these two or three or four point stories, these little coherent packages. Oh, um, here's an example. If I were to ask you, hey, uh, have you ever thought about telling a story in bullet points? Like, uh, okay, number one, we went to the store. Number two, they didn't have the Hershey bars that we wanted. Number three, so we got the Nestle bars instead. End of story, right? There's your three-point story. Have you ever thought about telling the Bible story in three points? If this was some assignment for a class and you just had to do this, three points, three points only. How do you do it? How do you go about that? You might say, uh, okay, number one, God created man. Nice start. Um, number two... Uh, man rebelled in, in the fall, dun, dun, dun. And uh, the number three, um, Jesus redeemed man by sacrificing himself. Okay, so there's a nice coherent package, right? One, two, three. Uh, are all of those facts true? Uh, yeah, I believe they're true. And I believe that practically everybody who calls him or herself a Christian would agree with me on these particular things. Imagine that Jack said something that's not controversial, right? So there's your three-point uh, story, your little coherent story about the Bible. But if I were to ask you, well, wait a minute, what about Satan? Isn't Satan a really big part of the Bible story? Oh, yeah, I left that out, I guess. Well, of course, and, you know, to be fair, it's it's an exercise where you're only allowed to have three points. So, okay, fine. Uh, so, uh, but the question is, well, you left him out and you didn't, uh, if you're like many that I've had this talk with, you didn't think, well, I had to leave that out. I hated doing it, but you know, I had to only choose three. Uh, chances are for many, you didn't even think about it and you were fairly content with your project, uh, results without even thinking about, well, what have I left out here? And, and that's what I'm getting at here, this idea of, of, um, of the coherence of a thing. Well, yeah, that sounds coherent. I like that story. Yeah, but it leaves a bunch of stuff out and not just Satan. There's, there's certainly more. And again, uh, don't get mad at me here. This, it's just an intellectual exercise to make a point, that's all. So you've got your Bible story in mind uh, and you want it to have few points so you can keep track of it easily. But God put a bunch of stuff in the Bible, if you believe God was behind it. A bunch of stuff. There's a lot in there. It's not just three points or two or six. You know, I, I have yet to see a What We Believe page on a website that has more than seven or eight bullet points on it. 
And isn't that interesting? He's like, oh, let's see. I got number seven. Here's number eight. Okay, I'm done. That must be all you believe over there at, uh, you know, whichever church it is. Well, uh, obviously not, right? So we work in this abbreviated sense, and yet we have the whole Bible. Plus, we have uh, a lot more ancient Near Eastern literature that is very related to the Bible, and uh, some of which has been disputed uh, by some should be in the Bible itself, too. So uh, for the cognitive miser who wants the three-point sermon, the three-point story, the three-point belief, um, it's very difficult to have all this extra information. I suppose that the number of people who really are working the puzzle, trying to take lots of this information in mind, is a very low number. You know, the Thoreau thing has one in a thousand who's actually hacking at the root of a problem. Uh, I suppose that it could be as bad as one in 10,000 or even one in a 100,000 uh, believers in God who's actually trying to work the Bible puzzle. And of course, this is all super, super fuzzy math here. So I don't intend to be giving you statistics. And I want to make that abundantly clear. What I'm saying is that uh, the number of people who will take something as a given because it's hearsay versus the number who will say, well, uh, I've heard this and I've heard that, but I'm looking into it for myself. I want to see for myself. That's what I'm talking about. And that is a fairly rare thing. And of course, to talk about it is even made more difficult because you might very well look into one thing. In fact, you might look very deeply into it. In fact, you might work on it for a month in your spare time. But then there may be other things that you don't look into at all, right? So, so how do you measure this? It's very difficult. It's difficult to talk about. But I wanted to throw it out there as a basic principle that generally speaking, there are a lot more people uh, repeating memes, uh, repeating hearsay, than there are actually examining and I'm going to skip forward to where I put down the Mark Twain quote. I know we've talked about it before. Uh, Mark Twain. In religion and politics, people's beliefs and convictions are, in almost every case, gotten at secondhand and without examination from authorities who have not themselves examined the questions at issue, but have taken them at secondhand from other non-examiners whose opinions about them were not worth a brass farthing. And, of course, a brass farthing, if you don't know, is a really inexpensive coin. Really cheap, uh, close to worthless coin. And so he's saying that what people pass around is just not generally worth much. Most of them don't really know what they're talking about. And I believe our culture is quite like that. And so you can go your whole life having heard this or that little two or three or four point uh, package retold, but you do you know if it's really true? Is this the right way to size it up? Or have we left a bunch of stuff out? Or haven't, have we even gotten some of the facts wrong about the parts we did put in the story, right? So this framing effect is really bad because a lot of people have got their eyes shut and they don't even recognize that there are problems with their positions. And we're going to talk about some of that today. I uh, was reminded of this quotation by Keith Stanovich. He's another cognitive scientist. 
uh, in his book, Rationality and the Reflective Mind, this is from page uh, 67, and he's talking about this framing effect, you know, where you, you tell somebody, oh, here's what happened, and they say, oh, okay, I got gotcha. you, there's what happened. <laughs> and they're taking it all from you without doing any further research, they're trusting what you told them, is it the full story, is it the true story in every respect, and all that. And so he says, the frame presented to the subject is taken as focal. That is, they're going to look at it. They're going to see it the way it's put. It becomes the, the, the anchor for a, you know, what they call an anchoring bias or an anchoring effect. It becomes the focal bias. That person is going to keep looking at it that way. And so he goes on. The frame presented to the subject is taken as focal, and all subsequent thought derives from it, that is from the frame, than from alternative framings, because the latter would necessitate more computationally expensive simulation operations. Okay, so that, that, that's the PhD speaking there. Uh, my interpretation of that, my paraphrase is, look, thinking through stuff is hard. It's much easier if you just take it the way it was presented to you the first time. And Stanovich makes, uh, you know, many other points in his writings. One of them is this, um, most people have no idea that they would have uh, gotten a different set of beliefs about a topic if the topic had been presented to them a different way the first time around. And I think this is very, very true. And another problem that we have is that uh, we tend to think, oh, I need to look into this. Let me be sure I've interpreted everything right. And so then we'll say, self, did you interpret everything right? And the self says, well, of course. And we're like, oh, great. Thanks so much for your feedback. Well, I've checked that one off so good uh, to know that I've done good work in my mind. And uh, Stanovich has this little one-liner I, I just uh, noticed that I had uh, underlined, uh, where he, he talks about, quote, a belief in absolutely accurate introspection. That is, when we survey our own thoughts and our own mental processes, we believe they're going to be absolutely accurate. What, uh, you know, when we go searching in our minds to check our work, oh, yes, I will, I will have done perfect work. And this is an assumption people tend to make uh, far too often, uh, perhaps not always, but we do. Oh, yeah, I, I, I wasn't rude to that guy. <laughs> Your friends are looking at you like, yes, you were. Or, oh, no, I wasn't biased in that situation. And they're shaking their heads at you. Yes, you were. So the idea, do you always see yourself accurately as you really are? And the answer is a resounding, a resounding no, not always. So here's the thing. Regarding the Bible, and regarding anything else, really, if you start paying attention to all the evidence, it's going to burst a lot of your hearsay bubbles. Our culture does not deal with all the evidence. E even if you say, okay, the Bible, and that's it, there's nothing more I need to read. There's no other fact that could help me understand what's in the Bible. I need to read only the Bible and it's 1,100 or so pages. It's 31,000 and something verses. It's about 300 uh, or three quarters of a million words in there. That's it. 
that's the whole body of uh, literature I need to read, and we're done. Okay. If you start paying attention even to just that set of data, that information, uh, you're not going to fit in well with this three-point culture. You're just not. You're not doing what the culture does. That, that's too much information. We don't need all of that. Well, there are going to be times when the three-point story uh, is really missing a very important fourth point that needs to be taken into consideration or when one of the three points is wrong. And so you're just supposed to shut up, I guess, if you're in that culture and just don't talk about it, right? So let's talk about some end times business and whether what was predicted to happen is well interpreted by us. In other words, what are our expectations for the fulfillment of the things that were prophesied? Like when Jesus says he's going to come back, well, do we know what that coming back was supposed to be like? Are we certain we've got that right? Or when uh, you read in the Bible about dis destructive things happening, well, are we sure we understand what thing was supposed to happen so that when it does happen, we could know, yeah, that was definitely the thing, or could we have got any of that wrong? That's the question. In other words, the, what we expect to happen or what we expect did happen already if it was already fulfilled or something, is this what the prophets meant to convey or have we got it twisted somehow? Uh, so I want to, you know, th today is n not a primer on uh, end times systems or uh, eschatology, which is the, the study of end times. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's several Bible passages that use phrases like end times, last days, latter days, this is the last day, and so forth. There are these, um, these passages in there. Well, what's that all about? And then all the prophecies about what was supposed to happen. Uh, and people are all over the board regarding how to take that, how they interpret these things. Uh, some people will, uh, say, oh, it's, it's all future. Nothing is fulfilled yet. Uh, some people will say all of it is fulfilled already completely. Like there is zero Bible prophecy that's not yet fulfilled. Uh, that first group is called futurists, all right? You'd put everything in the future or almost everything. The second group is called preterists, meaning it's, it's already happened, uh, and, or at least Almost all of it, you know, there's full preterists and hyper preterists and partial preterists and so forth. All right. And then um, there's a lot of other in between. Uh, has it happened yet or not? And then, of course, the question, well, what was supposed to happen? Uh, so um, for a lot of people, uh, for example, uh, they think they have a, just a slam dunk proof against preterism. That is that uh, all of the Bible prophecies have already been fulfilled. And to have this proof, they only need a couple of bits of information to keep it going. Uh, for example, they might very well pull Matthew 24, uh, verse 3. Let me just read this passage. You'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, as he, this is Jesus, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him. I'm reading from the King James. They came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, they had just been at the temple 
uh, and this was the big famous speech, Matthew 24, the thing about, hey, do you see these stones in the temple? I tell you, they will all be um, fallen down. Not one will be left on another and so forth. And so they're asking him about this. And they ask, what will be the signs of your coming? And how did they know about that? Well, they'd been told he was coming back. Uh, okay. Uh, and of the end of the world. And so this passage, people have in their mind, and they'll say, aha, there's going to be an end of the world. Okay. And so uh, let's see if, if we want to make a, a three-point story out of this. Let's pick this other passage. Let's add to this Second Peter 3, verse 10. Uh, this, again, is from the King James. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So they've got in the first verse, Matthew 24, Jesus says, hey, there's going to be the end of the world, or you know, he and his disciples are talking about it. And then over here, yep, we see uh, elements shall melt with fervent heat and the earth will be burned up. So, okay, so there's your end of the world. Yeah, that's very good. There's your coherent story. And uh, if they want even more proof, well, let's get one more uh, passage. Let's make it a rule of three, right? Let's, we need one more uh, little piece in our puzzle and then we've got a wrapped up a package of what all was supposed to happen. So perhaps they turn to Revelation 21 for this. And uh, this is, I suppose, verse 1. I didn't write it down. I think it's verse 1. Uh, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth, or the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So, okay, great. Here we go. It's all wrapped up in this neat little hearsay passage. I've got Jesus uh, in that discussion. There's going to be an end of the world. And then I've got the fire and the melting of the elements and all that. Okay. And then, oh, yeah, afterwards, apparently, there's a new earth. So the first earth was passed away. Okay, great. Well, there you go. <laughs> there's my neat little package, right? And people will take something like this or even this particular little proof or one similar to it, and they'll repeat it again and again, and they might never stop to figure out that there are some problems with this. For example, they might never stop to figure out that back in that very first passage in Matthew 24, uh, a little later in the passage, there's some information that really messes with their idea that, yeah, one day um, Jesus is going to destroy planet Earth, put a new one in its place, and it's going to happen with uh, fire. The destruction part will happen with fire. They, they never figure out this, and yet it's in the same passage right under their noses. It's in Matthew 24. You have to read down all the way to verse 34 to get this. But after Jesus has described the various calamities that they were discussing, uh, him and the apostles, he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. <laughs> so wait, Jesus, you're saying that planet Earth would be destroyed in the same generation in which you and the apostles were having that conversation? In Matthew 24. Well, at this point, you have to shut your eyes to part of the evidence, since you've already got the story that you want all settled out. You can't keep letting new evidence in, new information, not if your preferred story is the predetermined conclusion of the matter. 
no, I want it to be uh, Earth destroyed by fire, you know, melting and stuff, and then a new Earth. And obviously that hasn't happened yet because we're still here on Earth. So uh, that must be future, and that's how it's going to be. Reminds me of that Vicky Valancourt from uh, The Waterboy. That's how it's going to be about the score of the game that she'd predicted. All right, it's just predetermined. It's beyond question. This must be uh, what was meant to happen. But indeed, if Jesus is correctly translated and interpreted here, and if he himself was right in the matter, then this must have happened already. That is, if you take four points into your story and not just the three. And by that four point, I'm talking about later on in verse 34 in Matthew 24, and during the same speech, where he says it's all going to happen in that same generation. If you bring that fact in, it must have already happened. And this naturally throws people that buy into that model into a tailspin. For they're standing on planet Earth, and they know it still exists. Or, if they dared to think about it, uh, they could wonder whether it had possibly been replaced, the planet had been replaced at some time in the past before we got here, and they're standing on the new earth now. But no, no, wait, that won't do. Uh, they would think for their other things attached to the new earth business and revelation and things that they think have not happened yet or, or could not, should not happen yet, whatever. So it really messes up their model. And what in the world are you supposed to do in that situation? I really wish you hadn't brought that up, Jack. That, uh, you know, this generation stuff in Matthew 24. It was, it was going so well until you brought that up, you see. Now, I intend to deal with this further, but for right now, I'm going to let you stew on this problem. Indeed, many have scurried to find a way out. Some have strived to explain away the generation word. Uh, they want to try to prove to you that it doesn't mean that period of 30 or 40 years or whatever a society considers a generation, but that it refers to the human race or to something like that. So they're saying, oh, you know, until this um, uh, generation will pass and all that, they're talking about, oh, humankind. But that gets pretty silly. If you spin it this way, you get Jesus saying something like, all these things will happen before humans pass away from planet Earth. Well, uh, sure, Jesus, <laughs> thanks for clearing that up, right? That, that tells nothing about the timing. So uh, it doesn't really make sense, and yet uh, things like this are found convincing by lots of people who just want a way out of having to look at the other information, you see? So this sort of evidence ignoring is a protecting of our established, predetermined conclusions about what the Bible authors meant. Let's look at another one that actually plays into this eschatology business, but it goes way back to the beginning and is not about the end uh, primarily. Uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Okay, Bible student, what are we being told about here? Don't most people take this to mean that there was a time called the beginning and that before that time, planet Earth did not exist, but at that time, God created planet Earth and that he also created heaven. 
Isn't that what most people think this is telling them? And for that matter, which heaven did they mean? Do they mean the greater universe that we see in our science documentaries? Or do they mean heaven as in the place where God and his angels live throughout so much of the Bible narrative? And is there a difference? While the typical answer might be, if someone were to dare to completely be honest about it, something like, let's just call it the universe heaven, Jack, since that makes it an easier story. And so we assume it is the cosmos here, the stuff Carl Sagan talked about, or now Neil deGrasse Tyson. And we operate in utter confidence that we have got it right and that there's no need to examine any further. But what about verses 9 and 10? Genesis 1, right under your nose, if you've been reading verse 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, it's right under your nose. Look at verse 9 and 10. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. Wait a minute. Didn't God know that earth in this chapter refers to planet earth? What's he doing calling some dry ground earth? When earth is the proper designation for the entire planet. And of course, we're utterly certain about this beyond any question or doubt or examination. Uh, we know that what was brought into existence in verse one is planet earth, right? Well, no, that's your assumption. That's the way it's been framed for you. That's the way you've been told again and again and again from the pulpit, from your parents, from your cousin Larry, you know, from whomever. But if the author of Genesis 1 uses that word earth, it's Eretz in the Hebrew, if he uses that word earth in verse 1, but he reveals in verse 10 that earth is actually God's name for something. Then the question is, well, was the term being used that same way in verse 1? Or is the author ignoring that God had named something by that word and he's using it some other way? And so what did God use that word earth to name? Well, it was the, quote, dry land, end quote, or dry ground, depending on which uh, translation you're looking at. Well, wait, if it's planet Earth, why would he only call the dry land Earth? And why is the word planet not in there? Right. And uh, OK, so we could go down a trail there, but and I don't want to go down there. But uh, the question here is, well, why would we read Genesis 1 and use that word earth in a way that's inconsistent with how God himself used the word in verse 10? Is that honest, rational, and responsible? Would we rather we didn't know this information? Well, apparently so, because so many people just simply ignore it. And they'll say, no, my, my use of the word earth will not be informed by verse 10. I think there's good reason to look into this. In fact, I even wonder if the whole dry land thing 
is itself a metaphor for something else. But even if you want to say, no, God had some reason to name only the dry land on planet Earth, and he used the word Earth by which to name it, well, okay, that's funny. It left the waters out, didn't it? If, if we're going literal here, and we can talk about this some more in some future episode, my goal here is to get you thinking about these things, that it is not as easy as you might think to interpret all this well, especially if you want to do it consistently and in a way that takes all the facts into account. Now, I believe we've talked about this before, although I was not a good boy. I did not write down uh, what episode it was in. But the, uh, there is more recent scholarship in the last few decades looking at the translation of Genesis 1 from the Hebrew that uh, tends to undermine somewhat the traditional translation of verse 1 in particular. Uh, you know, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. It's the Jewish Publication Society, their 1985, I believe, uh, version, the reworking of Genesis 1. A lot of people may be very uh, skeptical about that. Oh, what's up with that? They're not even Christians or whatever. Uh, but the, the question is whether scholars can look at language and make good decisions about what it meant. Uh, you know, did they have to be professing Christians and have the Holy Spirit and be, you know, inspired by the Spirit to make the choices they made? Or can they do it based on the facts of scholarship and of linguistics? Right? There's your question. And a lot of people, of course, will say, oh, no, it had to be, it had to be like inspired by God if it's going to be right. And that just opens up a whole bunch of trouble because not even the King James uh, that so many people love is uh, perfect in every way. And if you're honest, rational, and responsible, you can see that. So, in fact, we'll, we'll look at that in a little bit. So if you've got other versions who are slowly starting to uh, acknowledge that, hey, this might point to God creating something on a planet that already existed, and I didn't intend to get into the particulars of the JPS translation today, but it's, it's something more like this. Uh, when God began to create heavens and earth, uh, the earth was like this, that, and the other thing. So in other words, the planet's already existing, and whatever the creating that he's doing is a matter of, of establishing things on an existing planet. Now, if that's true, and again, I say if, because I don't know. Uh, but if that's true, that's a real game changer. Because suddenly a lot of the talk about the age of the planet Earth uh, is, is off the table when it comes to arguing science versus the Bible. In other words, if the Bible's not telling us that the Earth is 6,000 years old or so, as uh, Cardinal Usher uh, calculated, giving us given a certain method. Uh, if the Bible's not telling us that, okay, well, that conversation can be over then. We can say that, oh, well, the Bible doesn't say how old the earth is. And you might come back and say, well, it, uh, it still says something about how old uh, man is, mankind, humankind. And maybe it does. 
and even that is based on the assumption that Adam and Eve were the first created humans. And there's even room to wonder whether that is what we're being told or not. So again, so many of the things that are just taken as you know, <laughs> gospel truth um, and unassailable facts may not necessarily be so. Now, this is not me doing my own rendition of uh, it ain't necessarily so from what was that Porgy and Bess, the things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. No, I'm talking about our interpretation of what we read in the Bible. And there's just no guarantee that when Billy picks up a book uh, and reads, he's going to interpret accurately in accordance with what the author had in mind. There is no fail-safe for that. There's nothing to keep us from messing up. Uh, you've done it yourself. I've done it myself. In fact, even passages where we now will say, oh yeah, you know, I'm sorry. I used to be wrong about that. I, I believe something different, but now I see better. Well, even on some of those see better passages, we're still wrong. <laughs> and yeah, that's how it is. And what are you going to do? You know, you, you kind of have to leave the door open to further learning on just about every point that you believe, right? Well, no, we don't like that. That's not our religion. We want it all uh, you know, tied up in a neat little package with a bow. Please no more than three points, maybe four. And then that's it. That's all I want, you see. But God gave us a Bible that's bigger than that. And he gave us evidence that's bigger than still just the Bible alone, too, right? Okay, so... What are you going to do? The JPS uh, translation is, let's just say that's wrong. That can't be right. Okay, good. Then we can uh, sort of wipe our hands of it and be done with it and matters closed. Yeah, but, uh, you know, some of the Bible translations are starting to um, at least acknowledge this a little bit. And from what I understand, uh, they're hesitant to go against the tradition you know, one discussion, I think this is probably from Michael Heiser, uh, or, or somebody was saying that, um, you know, when you, when you walk in the, the bookstore and you, you need to buy a new Bible, and you see, oh, look, here's a new, never heard of this one, um, you know, New International or you know, Revised Standard or whatever it might be, English Standard Version. Well, what's this? And so what do people do? Well, they turn to, they turn to Genesis 1 and they spot check a few passages. And so if it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, like, yep, this one sounds right. <laughs> of course, are they going to read all 31,000 other verses? Oh, no. They might check John 3.16. You know, they might check something else, one or two. Right? And other than that, for most people, it's whether they've had hearsay. Oh, my pastor said, avoid that version. It's a bad version, right? Well, that's hearsay. Do they know themselves that it's bad? No, they're not going to do that work to find that out. They'll, they'll just believe on what they've heard. So what are you going to do? Now, I have listed uh, in the show notes, or I will list, um, a link to Michael Heiser's uh, lengthy talk. I think it's just over an hour. He's talking to some congregation somewhere regarding Genesis 1 and the Jewish Publication Society uh, translation. And I highly recommend that you listen to that to understand what are some of the issues there. Uh, he does, just so you know, he is a Hebrew scholar, uh, and he does call this, as I recall, uh, something like a perfectly good translation. 
uh, regarding that Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3. So uh, is he wrong? Perhaps he is. And perhaps we can just settle the matter and be done with it, never have to think about it again. But what if he's right? And of course, this isn't coming from him. This is coming from other scholars and, and more than just one. So, um, boy, oh boy, what if Genesis 1 isn't uh, exactly about everything that we've always thought it was about? Have you ever heard of these things at your church? If not, why not? Why aren't they interested in knowing about the facts that don't fit into their predetermined narrative? And this just really challenges what kind of people we are, right? So uh, we took a little foray into Genesis 1 in the middle of a talk about eschatology, but I've done it quite on purpose. One is just to find an example of what we're talking about, how the neat little package sometimes unravels when you read a little farther. But also it does tie back into it. So let's get back to the end times business in Matthew 24. Now the verse that that starts these expectations uh, with people about the end of the world, uh, often it's from Matthew 24, from Jesus' talk there. And I want to read it to you again. Uh, The last time I read it to you was in King James Version. This time will be the English Standard Version, the ESV. Uh, Verse 3, And he sat on the Mount of Olives, uh, or as he sat, the uh, disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? It does not use the word world here, but the word age. And if you're paying attention, you're thinking, hmm, that's different. (laughs) And indeed, it is. The word that's used here is not any of the customary Greek words for world or earth or planet earth or universe or cosmos. No, it's the common word for age. It's eon or uh, ion in the Greek, A-E-O-N. Uh, It's a long period of time. It's an epic. And uh, they were discussing an age. The question, when will the end of the age be? They already knew about his coming. They'd been discussing that too, ongoing. And here they want to know the timing of this, the end of the age. Yet most Christians today know very little about what an age is or was. They know very little about all the Bible has to say on the subject. They have very little awareness of the fact that in the New Testament times, there was a consistent message that a change in the age was imminent. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Uh, Just a snippet here I'm pulling, just a phrase. Quote, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They're, They're talking about themselves. You go check it out. I hope you will. I want you to wrestle with this. This is not just me giving you hearsay packets. This is for you to go wrestle. So they're talking about their own generation, quote, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So they're expecting, and the way I read this now, and you can check me on this, the way I read this, it's the end of one age and the beginning of the next. So two terminuses, termini, um, one the end of one and another one about to begin. And it was imminent. It was upon us, they said. Uh, how about Matthew thirteen thirty nine? This is Jesus talking. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. 
Well, he doesn't say end of the world. He says end of the age. Same word here. Matthew 13, 40, the very next verse. Uh, and the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire. So will it be at the end of the age. Not of the world. Even Matthew 28, uh, in, in the passage that's so often called the Great Commission. Uh, I'll pick it up here in verse 20. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, he says. Not world. The promise, and this is to his apostles, the promise he would be with them to the end of the age. Uh, and knowing that this was imminent, a change of ages was imminent upon them. This is not some promise that, oh, yes, I will stay in Jerusalem with you guys as you do the job of being apostles and I'll stay here forever and ever. No, it wasn't that. It was to the end of the age. And so we have to reassess things when we get this new information. We have to go look into that. And chances are, if you're like most, you've never looked into the ages and yet there's a lot of language in the Bible that's very useful about this, including, I'll just throw this out without going deeply into it, the word forever and terms like that, forever and ever and such. Go looking into those. Look into the original language and see if you don't find that it means literally something more like to the ages or to the age, which would imply to the end of the present age. That's what it seems to mean literally. Well, what if Bible promises about forever things? What if at least some of those are not meaning to say uh, this thing we're talking about will be endless. It will never have an end. But rather, this thing we're talking about will last for as long as the age lasts. Go look that up. Go find out if I'm right about that. Even that is a huge game, game changer on many of the passages that you'll find in the Bible. There is one, by the way, um, and this is for you to, to struggle with. I'm not going to spell it all out for you to hear today as if I've got it all figured out. But where Solomon says the earth lasts forever. Well, which earth is he talking about? That's the first question. Is he talking about planet earth, the way that we think about it today? The blue marble that spins in the, in the uh, space? Or is he talking about whatever that thing was that God created on the, quote, dry land, end quote? But whatever it was, he said it lasts until, uh, well, forever is the word you'll have in your Bibles, most certainly, or most likely. Uh, but, what it means is to the age. So whatever thing earth he's talking about was only supposed to last to the age. Hmm. Well, okay. Now I submit that's not planet earth, but the thing that this order of things that God created in Genesis one, that's where I'm leaning right now in my working of the puzzle and that there was going to be a new order of things that would come about at the end of the age and the beginning of the next age. And of course, I'm, I'm a little off my chart here. I did not plan to get into all of this today, but Jesus did talk. You can go look it up. He talked about, quote, this age 
and the age to come, end quote. So if you ponder on that for a few minutes, he was talking about an age in which uh, they were all living at the moment. He was saying that saying, but then he's talking about an age that was yet to come. And Solomon said that the earth would last to the age. Well, isn't that interesting? So if you want to flip back forward there to Revelation 24, and you see there's a new earth at the end, and we're going to still talk about that in a bit. Ah, well, could it be that the establishment, the order of things that Solomon was talking about would last until the change of the ages, and then a new order would happen after that? Well, yes, that could be. That sounds reasonable. But our problem may be, well, that doesn't fit in with my three-point package, <laughs> right? So we have to go reassess things, and oh boy, you're throwing a bunch of dust into the air. So um, I have hardly ever heard good conversation about things like this, about words like forever and such in the Bible. We would rather, it seems, leave them fuzzy so we can just sort of hand wave things away and all that. Well, so these three things, three or four things I just read about the end of the age, this, um, let's see, the harvest is at the end of the age, uh, the weeds will be burned up in the fire at the end of the age, uh, a lot of people assume things like this are about the end of the world, right? Well, right, because they're starting with the, the King James rendition of Matthew 24, 1 through 3, uh, where they're talking about the end of the world rather than a better translation, the end of the age. So these are end of the age passages and not end of the existence of planet Earth passages. That's the only responsible way to read it. Uh, but some people still will say, well, no, that these things couldn't have happened because we know planet Earth is still here. So, you know, they're jumping to the second passage in that little three-passage proof I spun out for you earlier. Uh, it's this one, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night uh, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Uh, the earth also and the works that are in them shall be burned up. Okay, so let's look at this passage. What are we being told here? Uh, it says that, uh, first of all, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are in them shall be burned up. So we got elements melting uh, in the heat and the earth gets burned up. Okay, well, what elements? If you're like me, you grew up in America, you went to school and science class, uh, obviously one consideration that comes to mind is the periodic table of the elements. We're talking about chemical elements like uh, hydrogen, helium, and the others, which I don't have memorized in order. So is that the right way to interpret this passage? Oh, yes, we know what elements are. Well, <laughs> what about someone else who might come along and say, oh, no, I know exactly what that is. I'm a plumber. I deal with water heaters. And every plumber knows that water heaters have a heating element inside. And so clearly this passage is telling me that when Jesus comes back, all the heating elements are going to be melted in a fervent fire. 
So the, the return of Jesus would present a terrible danger to all the water heaters of the world. Well, obviously that would be ridiculous. Why would Jesus or Peter or anybody else be talking about water heaters? Of course, why would they be talking about the periodic table of the elements? The Bible isn't about either one of those generally, right? So why would it, we expect the eschatological passages in the Bible to suddenly start talking about those things? Uh, the word for elements here in 2 Peter 3.10 is in Greek, stoichon. And you'll have to pardon my pronunciations. I am not a Greek expert. I, I am putting a link to a passage or to the page on that word at blueletterbible.org. That'll be in the show notes today. So let's look where that's used. I think it shows up seven times in the New Testament. And I want to read you each of those passages. They're just one liner, so it won't take long. And I want you to stop me when I get to the one that makes it obvious that it's talking about chemical elements from the periodic table of the elements. Okay, Galatians 4, verse 3. Even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. And that's the word right there, elements. So they're somehow under bondage to whatever this element is. So are they under bondage to the chemical elements, you know, he helium and sodium and, and so forth? Galatians 4.9. But now, uh, after that, you've known God, or rather are known of God. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? So here we have the Galatians desiring to be in bondage to uh, chlorine and to gold and to strontium. Do you think that's what this passage is about? Colossians 2 verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world. And that rudiments, that's the word here for elements in the Greek, the same word we're looking at. Uh, and not after Christ, he says. So let's see, don't get spoiled through philosophy and vain deceit um, according to the tradition of men after the chemical elements of the world. Well, what, is, what do chemical elements have to do with philosophy and deceit and human traditions? Sure talks like he's, sounds like he's talking more about spiritual things, about matters of principle and such, and not about, mm, let's see, calcium. Did I mention that one yet? Uh, Colossians 2 verse 20. Uh, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world... Why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Again, this word rudiments here is the same word that was translated elements in the passage we're looking at, 2 Peter 3. So is this about chemicals? No, it seems to have something to do with perhaps principles of the world or the rules of the world, ordinances of, the order of things, something in that ballpark, and not chemicals. Hebrews 5, verse 12. For when the time ye ought to be teachers, uh, for when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that, you, that one teach you again, which be the first principles, that's the word, uh, stoichon, uh, 
right here in this passage translated differently, but that's the same Greek word. Okay, so uh, you need someone to teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Okay, so here it's used of um, something that has to do with the oracles of God uh, and this idea of needing to be taught it. Is the author of Hebrews telling his audience that they really need to go learn the periodic table of elements? Yes, I think that's a little ridiculous too. So that brings us back to where we started, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. And then two verses later, uh, he goes on, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of the Lord, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements, same word again, shall melt with fervent heat. If this word doesn't refer to the chemical elements anywhere else, why should we take it as if referring to the chemical elements in 2 Peter 3? Again, why would the Bible be talking about chemical elements at all? Yes, it mentions gold and silver and a few other things like that and some rocks and minerals and such. But is it really a science book? No, in fact, I believe it's much less of a science book than most Christians tend to think it is, including Genesis 1, which is a huge, a huge topic. So in all these uh, Stoichon passages, the authors are talking about things like principles, principles of the law, rules and such. Some scholars even think there are good reasons to think that these passages are about the order of things, including the angel types. And this would make good sense because of the rest of what Second Peter talks about. But no, we've already decided, Jack, that it's about the earth being destroyed in a big fire. <laughs> well, okay, which earth? The earth you're thinking about in Genesis 1-1 or the one that God named earth in Genesis 1-10? See, even that is, is difficult to your case. Am I suggesting that if a word's used one way in one passage, it must be used that same way in every other Bible passage? Oh, no. I'm suggesting there's more to think about than your three-point story has. And that you need to be able to give an answer that is honest, rational, and responsible. So while we're at it, this idea of these... Uh, elements being uh, burned up in this fire. Just what kind of fire is it? This fervent heat and such. Whatever's supposed to do the burning. Is it a literal fire like you get when you strike, strike a match? You know, the Bible doesn't always talk about fire literally. Consider 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Was Timothy literally on fire? And if so, was Paul literally telling him, please do fan that flame? <laughs> do you think that's what this was about? Or might it have been some sort of metaphorical language here? Indeed, I'm not sure I know any human who wouldn't get this passage and know the metaphorical use of fanning into flame a thing. 
even in this day where we don't have to start fires, hardly. Or how about Hebrews 1.7? In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Is that literal or metaphorical? Do you think God turns angels into fires of the sort that burn down forests and such? Is that what this passage is intending to talk about? Well, maybe you say, oh, I don't know. And I'm okay with that. Yeah, right. You don't know. You'd have to go look into that. It is not obvious. We might want to assume an obvious answer. Well, no, it can't be that. It must be literal. I mean, or it must be figurative, uh, metaphorical. Um, okay, why? Well, because that would fit better into my model of things than if it were literal, you see. And so I don't know is a very good answer when it's true. It's not a good answer when it's not true. Like the Pharisees got put on the spot by Jesus once with a question. And they said, we don't know. <laughs> well, liars. They knew. But when it is true, when you don't really know, uh, it's the best question, the, the best answer there is. We don't know. Yeah, you need to go look into it. Question. If God were going to literally burn up planet Earth, what would be the point of that? Because it was wicked? Because it was somehow polluted or stained with sin? Okay. But what's the point of replacing it with a new planet Earth, as some assume they're being told here? Listen again to Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. If this new earth must be taken literally, as in, I will annihilate the existing planet Earth and replace it with a new planet Earth, that just happens not to have any sea, then why don't you interpret this other passage in the same exact way? Here's what I'm talking about. Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your old heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Do you really think that in that passage, God was promising the Jews that he would uh, literally do heart transplants on their bodies, replacing their original literal human hearts with new human hearts? Or when he says he'll put a new spirit in them, do you think, oh, well, he's going to take their old human spirit out and replace it with a new one? Well, if you don't handle this literally, then why don't why can you handle it literally in Revelation 21:1 with a new heavens and new earth? Why can't it just be a new order of things? You know, even the New Testament language about, you know, being made into a new man uh, versus the old man. Do you really think that's literal? I, I tell you what, uh, Billy becomes a Christian at age 75. Is he suddenly young? He can't grow a beard anymore. Is he shorter now than he was? 
because, you know, becoming a Christian, he's reverted back now to being, I don't know, 11 years old or 17. Well, no. The whole idea of the new man is obviously a metaphorical idea. It's not meant to be literal. Literal. So take this kind of thinking back to that three-verse proof we put together about the end times, you know, the Matthew 24, the second Peter three and the revelation 21, those three little one-liners we put together into this proof about how Jesus would destroy planet earth, uh, when he came back or something like that. Well, the way this kind of thing works, it's kind of like building a teepee, you know, that, uh, there's a hide over some posts on the teepee. Well, if you take the hide away, just the posts are there, but are they all standing on their own? Well, no. Uh, TP posts lean. They cannot stand on their own. They have to be leaned up against and lashed to other posts if it's going to work. And that's a lot of how people's Bible proofs work. It's like TP posts. And you have to lash them together with a really good lashing and hold it tight. You can't let it go or they'll all fall down. And of course, this is a metaphor I'm making here. They can't stand on their own. Oh, no, look, it says right here, the end of the world would be, uh, you know, uh, Jesus coming. Well, actually, no, let's go look at that poll. We'll find out that's leaning. Uh, it's a bad translation. It's the end of the age would be at his coming. Oh, <laughs> you see, that pole won't stand. It's going to fall down by itself. You have to keep it propped up against the others if you want to pretend it all fits together into this nice, uh, neat teepee. So what's the point of all this today? Is it to prove to you whatever would be the right end times model? No. It's to rattle your cage about how you probably need to vet your own eschatological expectations. In other words, is what you expect to happen at the end of the story really what the writers were telling you is supposed to happen at the end of the story? There are a lot of different eschatological systems out there. There's futurists and preterists and there's, uh, you know, amillennialists and postmillennialists and all this other stuff. And it gets a little overwhelming. Uh, just the names of it can sort of wear you out if you haven't really read through it a lot. Uh, and so how do people deal with this? Do they... Do they suddenly become super people, unlike they are in their daily lives, but they say, oh, the topic is eschatology. Therefore, I will duck in a phone booth really quick, put on my Superman cape and come out the intellectual giant who can handle all these things honestly, rationally and responsibly uh, and sort it all out perfectly without any biases and without any laziness and negligence whatsoever. No. You tend to be the same guy doing eschatology that you are planning out your shopping list. You're going to forget some things. You're going to um, make some mistakes in how much you need, how much you don't need. Oh, got that already. You know, uh, we make mistakes. And then when you quit looking at the details, that's when you quit realizing that you have mistakes that are in play. Michael Heiser uh, 
again, I've told you I've learned a great deal from him. I find his, uh, his work very useful. I certainly don't agree with it all. He will uh, talk about eschatology and say, look, all the systems out there, they've all got it wrong in various ways. They're all cheating in this way or that. And boy, I think you're just wasting your time. Well, I flatly degree, uh, disagree that you're wasting your time to try to understand eschatology. Uh, if it's a waste of time, why is it in the Bible? There's a question for you. He, um, he takes a position dealing with this phrase already, but not yet. And he'll show you a few examples of things in the Bible that are spoken of as if they were already happening, but yet they're also spoken of as if they're not yet happening. And so, uh, for example, something like uh, the idea that the Christians would become sons of God. Well, okay, at exactly what point? Uh, is this uh, the moment you come to belief in Jesus, then you're suddenly a son of God? Because see, son of God is more than just the English words that come to our minds. There's a history of that in the Bible. Uh, in fact, son of God was used of angels first, it seems, and often. So you have the idea of people becoming angels. Well, okay, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> Uh, when did that happen? Did that happen when somebody came to Jesus in the first century and got baptized and then poof, you're an angel? Well, it doesn't seem so. Yet, they did get some miraculous powers and, uh, quote, a taste of the heavenly gift, end quote, something like that, right? The powers to come. Hmm. Well, were they fully there yet? Were they like, you know, in the heavenly Jerusalem living with God and their glorified heavenly bodies now? Well, no, they weren't. They were still in their human bodies. And yet they have some manner of uh, powers like this, some sort of pre-tasting of things, you see. And so it gets a little tricky. There, It's being spoken of as if it's already, but we know it's not yet. Well, okay. And there's something to that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not poo-pooing that whole idea. Uh, here I am giving you examples of it myself. Or how about the, the term salvation and saved and saves and, and uh, all the, the forms of it? Have you ever noticed in the Bible that is not all past tense? You know, today we say, oh, I was saved when I was 17. Yeah, but if you go read the Bible, you'll find a lot of language where they're looking forward to a salvation even people that are already believers. So in their way of speaking, one wonders if it weren't that they knew it was a sure thing, provided they would stay faithful. And so they talk about it as if it had already happened, although they knew it had not yet happened, you see. Well, that's just more complicated than saying, well, look, I was saved when I was 17, been saved ever since, end of story, right? So there is something to already, but not yet. However, I think that that can be abused. And I think that you can end up waving your hands about everything that is eschatological in nature. Oh, that's already, but not yet. 
Oh, that's already, but not yet too. Yeah, so is that. Okay, really? So if I ask you, well, what about the second coming of Jesus? Oh, that's already, but not yet. Wait, you're telling me it hasn't happened? Right, but it has happened. Sure. Well, okay, at some point, doesn't this become something of a non-answer? Isn't it a dodge? If I ask you something else, uh, where was Jesus born? Oh, Bethlehem, Jack. Oh, very good. And that uh, that hasn't happened yet, right? Oh, no, no, that happened way back in the, you know, uh, 3 BC on September 11th, right? That's what some astrologists will say must have been the date of Jesus' birth. And I certainly don't know how to dispute that, uh, nor do I dispute it. Um, but, uh, okay, he was born back then. Well, that's not still yet to happen somehow. Well, no, don't be silly, <laughs> you see. <laughs> so I wonder if when it comes to promises, they had some manner of speaking about the certainty of God keeping his promises that led them into this already but not yet type of language on some issues. But I don't think everything was like that. Jesus had either come back yet or he had not. Pick a date. He's either back then, by then that, by, by that date, or he's not back by that date. It's not both. Well, yeah, he's back already, but just not yet. That's ridiculous, and it is a non-answer. And I think that it's very easy for somebody to make way too much of the already but not yet stuff. And so they end up kicking the can down the road. You know, the futurist has an easy time of this. Oh, yeah. Um, anything you read in there hasn't happened yet. None of it has. Well, so they don't have to deal with it in their lifetimes. They just say, oh, it's all future, you know, until it happens. And then I'll let you know, right? Well, gee, uh, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. That's the very passage we started with today. Has that happened yet or not? Well, actually, it happened about 40 years later in 70 AD on August the something or other, 6th, 11th, something like that. It was destroyed. And it was just as Jesus said, not one stone was left on another. Now, some people say, oh, no, that's not true. The Western Wall is still standing today. Well, you don't understand that the Western Wall was not uh, part of the temple. Herod had wanted there to be a bigger temple complex at the top of that hill than there was room for. So he had the hill artificially built up into a larger area on the top. And he had walls built to uh, pile earth, earth, you know, dirt, rocks behind to make a tabletop there where there was more room to build on it than had originally been there. And so the armies of Titus come in and the whole thing gets destroyed. Uh, the temple itself got utterly destroyed, just as Jesus said, happened in 70 AD. And did they destroy all of the Western Wall? No. Is that what Jesus prophesied about? No. So you haven't really won any arguments there if you want to say, see, it didn't come true. <laughs> so you have all these systems out there and most of them want the simple version. They don't want to deal with all the details. They don't want to put all the facts on the table and work it through. 
I've been trying to do that for several years. It is quite a project. It is not easy. It is not simple. And so a lot of times I think people just want to decide not to decide rather than to work the puzzle. Let's talk about C.S. Lewis. Here's a man who is uh, probably the most beloved Christian scholar ever, uh, you know, this side of the New Testament times. And yet he made a very tragic, in my opinion, a very tragic decision trying to figure out how to think about all this end times prophecy and about the very words of Jesus that we read today. And I'm not going to quote it for you. I didn't pull it up. I don't have the book here with me. But he has a collection of essays called The World's Last Night. And in that book is an essay of the same title. And I believe it's in that one where he says that regarding the timing of the last coming, Jesus was clearly deluded. That's his actual word. Uh, and that the apostles whom Jesus had taught were also deluded and that they didn't know any more than anybody else about the timing of Jesus' return. I think Lewis made the same mistake here. Is this me uh, pounding everything that Lewis ever wrote? No, this is me pounding what he wrote right here. Listen to Matthew 24 again, same chapter we've been in, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour... No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So, you know, Lewis quotes this and says, see, Jesus didn't know. But that doesn't tell the whole story. What exactly did Jesus say he did not know? It was the day or the hour. So what else does that leave about the timing of Jesus' second coming? Uh, if we got day or hour that he didn't know, well, what about weeks or fortnights or months or years or decades or centuries or millennia or ages or epochs? Epoch, as some would say. Did Jesus say, I don't know anything about the timing? Indeed, had he not said it would happen in that very generation, all these things will happen. So you have him claiming to know the generation in the very passage in question, yet because he also says, I don't know the day or hour, you conclude, oh, he didn't know anything. He was completely wrong, you see. And so this is the kind of corner that we get ourselves painted into when we've got a model in mind and we're not able to consider new information. And it's tragic. It's very irresponsible and it leads you to some pretty wacky places like, oh yeah, remember Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the second power of the two powers of heaven, the one long foretold to come here and save the world? Yeah, I remember that, Jesus. Well, uh, great guy, but he was wrong about his second coming. Well, if you ask me, that's a little problematic now, isn't it? And I also, also think it's ironic that the person, the human today, who does not study all these things out, 
will draw a conclusion like that that throws Jesus under the bus. Oh, well, yeah, I guess Jesus was wrong. You know, too bad, but he's an awfully great guy in other ways, and it doesn't mean I don't worship Jesus anymore, right? Uh, you know, they, they will throw him under the bus and not assume, look, there must be something wrong with my understanding here. Which is very likely, because we're humans, we make mistakes. And so, I hope you understand what I'm talking about here, that this is a very common problem. It's a lot of information, and we need to pin it down. Now, I'll fight this fight with you here. I, you know, This is not the episode where Jack explains all of eschatology. Uh, indeed, uh, I'm still working the puzzle myself. But did Jesus mean to say, uh, I don't know anything about the timing of my return. If he meant to say that, then why did he keep saying things about the timing of his return? Wouldn't that be irresponsible? And wouldn't that be a sin? And yet here's some of the things he said, not only the, the, this generation thing that we already read, but listen to Matthew 16, 28. Uh, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew 16, 28. Why would he say that if he knew that he had no clue as to the time of his return? Well, he was deluded, said Lewis. Like, okay, well, that's even more troubling. You know, irresponsible would be bad enough, not deluded, you know, delusional. Uh, that's like double extra bad, especially by what miracle was he deluded about this, but about nothing else? And so where else all do we need to go looking to find other errors in Jesus' teaching? It's just an untenable uh, slippery slope there. There's no way to manage that. Uh, Mark 9, verse 1. Uh, it's Mark's account of the same thing, probably, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So he's not saying that some later will be alive. He's saying, no, some of you right here are going to be alive and see that. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, talking to the living members of the Sanhedrin, including the high priest, uh, I'll pick it up here in, in Matthew 26, verse 65. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He did not say, they in the future will see this. He said, you all will see it. How do you explain that away? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, uh, I've picked up in the middle here, and Paul goes on, uh, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. He's got the dead being raised uh, 
imperishable. They cannot uh, waste away. So they're in some new form. They're in their glorified selves, their glorified bodies. And he's got something else happening. We will be changed. Well, wait a minute. He's talking about living people that he calls we. He doesn't call them they. He doesn't say they who are the Christians living in that generation at that time will be raised. He says, or changed. He says, we will be changed. That's inclusive. It's not exclusive. So he's teaching a second coming that they would see as living humans, not as dead ones, mind you. He sets them apart. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. That's two different groups of people. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven and with a loud command, and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, gee, that's consistent with what we just read in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, and uh, it says, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he's got the dead ones. Well, duh, they would definitely be here when Jesus got back. And in fact, you know, people die. And so there's going to be dead people waiting for him. Great. No problem. But it's the we uh, who are still alive and are left. In other words, some of the we to whom Paul was talking that day would still be alive and left. This is what they were teaching. The apostles were teaching a fairly imminent second coming of Jesus. So what are you going to do with all of this? You may hate this. You may think, well, no, this can't be right. Because if, you know, because it didn't happen. Maybe you think, well, okay, it didn't happen, right? I just know it didn't happen. Therefore, they must have been wrong. And oh boy, that upsets my apple cart. Somebody else will say, well, maybe the predators are right. Maybe it did happen. I, I guess I need to go look. If you're already a predator, so like, well, yeah, I told you, right? But the, my point is today not to settle all of this. My point is that there are valid points in here that don't fit with your little three-step model of this or that or the other thing. And what are you going to do when you run across one of those points? Are you just going to ignore it? Are you going to pass off the whole thing to your preacher? Well, I asked my preacher, and he said it wasn't really important. You know, Heiser tells this uh, story. I've heard it a couple of times recently. I won't remember it exactly, but it's worth repeating about uh, a preacher who was doing a study with his congregation, I think perhaps even on the Second Peter 3 passage. And he gets to this chapter after whatever number of weeks getting through their lesson series. And when he gets to it, he tells the congregation, um, we're just going to skip this chapter and go on to the next one. Because he didn't understand it. He didn't know how to make sense of it. And so he just hand waves it on and we'll go on to the next. Well then, isn't that what so many of us do in various ways? We just skip it. You know, I talked previously, weeks ago, about abandoned trails. And how something comes up in Bible study and we're like, oh, I need to look into that. And then you never do. Or you look into it for, you know, a few minutes, or you think about it for a month, but you haven't got to the bottom of it, and then you just abandon it. Well, hello, 
How do you think we get in such um, crises of, you know, backordered thinking tasks? We get this backlog. It's like laundry piled up in the laundry room, three feet deep. Uh, well, I'm meaning to get to that. <laughs> well, yeah, it's about time, right? And, and of course, you know, we all get behind in the laundry, literally. And we do also in our Bible study. Yeah, but are we never going to get to that? Are we never going to settle anything? This is a crisis. What I've presented to you here is a huge crisis. So either Jesus and his apostles were wrong about this whole idea of the, of the then imminence of the return of Jesus, or uh, we've interpreted them wrong. And oh, well, like for instance, oh, the, yeah, the, like the earth is supposed to explode or melt or something. Well, what if you got that wrong and that's not what was being taught? Well, oh, okay. Well, then what I thought was a slam dunk, well, it can't have happened yet because... Uh, you know, the earth's still here, right? Well, that one, you're sort of disabused of that idea and you have to be honest and say, well, I, you know, I don't know. Are we in the new earth now? Or, you know, how would that work? Could that be true? Should I check that out and look into that? Right? You have to deal with these things or not. You can say, no, I'm not going to deal with that. Uh, you know, you cover your ears and say, la, 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 so you can't hear anymore. which has been tried, by the way. In fact, it's in the Bible. And people still do it today. Kids on the playground, at least, will do that. So did we misunderstand what they uh, predicted? Uh, Did their predictions not come true? Either is a tragedy. Imagine all these Christians going around telling everybody about Jesus and having... Uh, at least some of the big facts wrong about it. That's kind of tragic. That's pretty sad, if nothing else, right? One of my questions is, are we doing our best? Is this really the best work you can do? When it comes to eschatology and things like that, is it really the best you can do? Well, I looked into that once, but I didn't really get anywhere. Well, how, how long ago was that? Uh, 22 years. (laughs) Been back since? Nope. Hmm. Still teaching at your church? Yep. Hmm. Still teaching about eschatology? Yeah, sometimes. I see. So for 22 years, you haven't looked into this or that particular part of that puzzle again, yet you're still teaching the big picture of eschatology. Oh my, that sounds to me exceedingly irresponsible. And it is. Talk about, you know, uh, how does it go? Not uh, knowing what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Yeah, that's how it works, folks. That's how you get all these different camps of church all running their separate models of what it all meant and what happened and what was believed and said and taught and done. That's how you get here, by not looking at the details. Well, I really like these three uh, cherry-picked points from the Bible. I can work them together into some sort of a coherent story, 
and I really like my story and I like to tell my story. And you know what? Other people's like it too, Jack, because they come to church and sometimes they stay and, uh, you know, and that's to the glory of God and God's really moving and, and we can tell it because people are still coming. Hmm. Okay. Well, people still go to the Lions Club. Is that a movement of God too? People still go to the public schools. Does that prove it's from God? People still eat the garbage they sell at the grocery store. You know, the fake food. Does that mean it's from God? So we have this terrible tragedy afoot. And most in our generation are not even really trying. And it's from the book that they will tell you up and down, that's God's book. He put that here. So we could read it too. Okay, why don't you read it? Well, I do. I read the same passages over and over again whenever I need to feel better, whenever I need to pick me up. Well, okay. <laughs> so I think that's kind of irresponsible, especially now. I certainly would have not have told you that 20 years ago. But especially now, I think that's exceedingly irresponsible. And yet I know it's very, very common. So I've definitely changed in that way. But again, you know, and here's another thing we should talk about soon. This idea of continual revelation. Where uh, some Christians, and certainly not all, they think, well, look, I don't really need to do all that study because God's got my back, you see, Jack. God has the Holy Spirit who's continually revealing things to me inside so that if it were important, well, I would know about it even if I had not read about it, you see. Or if Brother Larry was wrong about something from the pulpit, well, God would tell me in my heart that it's not right. And then I could go tell Brother Larry about it, you see, and we could get it solved that way. I think that this is a very popular idea. Uh, fortunately, not everybody believes that uh, who... Uh, calls himself or herself a Christian, but a lot do. And it is very pernicious uh, because really nothing's off the table. Well, yeah, I know it says there that you should not um, oh, uh, steal, but you got to understand that was then, Jack, that was a couple of thousand years ago when that was written. And since then, the Holy Spirit has continued to um, reveal to me that stealing actually is okay as long as it helps the ministry or whatever excuse. I'm just making up ridiculous stuff here to show how ridiculous the whole idea is. Oh, well, yes, I know it says there that uh, there should, um, the Christian should not be sacrificing to idols. But Today, well, uh, the Spirit has revealed to us that it's actually okay today. You see, well, th that's, how, how am I supposed to believe that? And why am I supposed to believe that? What would make that attractive to me? What would make that seem like a responsible belief? 
let's see, it was really bad before and you were going to get condemned for it, but now it's okay. Right? You know, a hundred years ago, homosexuality would have been uh, condemned by a very large percentage of people who went to church because they would think it was wrong and they could show you passages in the Bible from which they got that idea. Now, a lot of people are saying, oh, no, it's not wrong. It's natural. And, and well, how do you know this? Well, uh, God testifies to me in my heart that this is right. Okay. Well, here's a question for you. Why isn't God going back through the Bible and putting out new editions every couple of decades to let us all know uh, for a fact that he's changed his mind and that this, that, and the other thing is now okay? Or that these other other things are no longer okay. They used to be. A love and kindness used to be okay, but now, no, bro, we don't really do that anymore. God told us not to do that anymore, you see. Uh, what you have here is a, a religion that comes from writing. And again, that causes serious problems because writing requires cognitive effort to decode properly. You can't get it by osmosis. You're not just going to pick it up. You have to do some work to get the thoughts off the page and into your head. And so this whole lesson today is all about people not wanting to do work. No, I want a three-point story I can tell. I don't want to have to work to get it or to get it right. And please don't make me consider your point number four. So this is um, the time in which we live. Regarding these, uh, these matters of eschatology, I deliberately upset your apple cart today with things you probably haven't thought about or at least haven't thought about much and certainly haven't come to any responsible conclusion about. Uh, do I have all this figured out? No. Am I working the puzzle? You bet. Am I working it hard? Well, as time allows, yeah. And um, I think it's very serious. I think we need to make a lot of progress with this. And we'll certainly talk about more of it as we go. But if we can't get our heads straight, what's the point? If we can't say, okay, look, I was created in the, in the, in the image of God. I know a lot of the things the Bible says about thinking and what God wants us to do. So I'm going to think that way, and I'm going to become mature in this way, and I will deal honestly, responsibly, and rationally with all the information that I find. I will not close my eyes to any of it. When new information comes about, I will have to take that into account too. I can't just lock it out and pretend it didn't happen. Uh, that does not, in my estimation, uh, represent the character of Christians today. This line from Thomas Jefferson, uh, not because of his religious beliefs, but because it's a fantastic line. He says something about following the truth, quote, wherever it may lead, end quote. And that's the thing right there. If we're going to only follow the parts of the Bible we like or we readily understand or that we think would be agreed with by the the uh, company we keep, then we're not really following God. And so that's why I'm doing this. Very glad to spend my birthday doing this. Uh, it's hard work, but I find it very important to do. And I'm, I feel like I'm almost cheating to be able to take the, you know, half a day off and uh, do this because 
I know it's very good. It's good for me to think through. And I really hope that you're starting uh, more and more to do your own thinking rather than just uh, repeating the hearsay that you hear other non-examiners uh, repeating. It, that's a nasty, nasty thing about the world in which we live. And if anybody could rise above that, you would think it would be followers of Jesus. So I hope you'll continue to consider these things. I look forward to the next time. Thanks for joining in.